0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God.
1: Well, in about about a month, Nikki and I have an anniversary uh, coming up, 23 years actually here in April, and I still remember when I proposed to her, because some of you know the story, because all her girlfriends had told her, you'll know he's going to propose because he won't be able to eat on the day that he's supposed to propose, because he'll be nervous. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And then if you know the story, we sat there, I took her to a Chili's, kind of a big deal, and we're sitting there eating, and... I looked and thought, I had this in mind, I was like, oh, darn it, I don't think I am gonna be able to eat. And so I'm like, but I had to, I didn't want to give it away, so I'm like stuffing, you know, stuff in my mouth just to try and like eat so she wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't let on that I was going to uh, propose to her, and so, and I, and I faked her out, she said she didn't know. So I'm pretty proud of myself, one of, one of the crowning achievements of my life, I think, um... <laughs> but we went and then I I proposed to her and and why why was it cuz I remember thinking like why is it a big deal and these guys can't eat and she just said that all her friends were telling her that they were they're just nervous and so it's just it's just hard because it's a big deal it's a big question that you're about to pop and the answer is you know is life altering here right and I you know we have a lot of these questions like that that can become very life altering we, we had one in my life, you know, about moving out here. We've been in Texas our whole life. Are we going to move here? And what does that mean for church, for friends, for what does Colorado mean as opposed to Texas? You know, you've got all these different layers there and our kids and moving and um, big questions around uh, throughout life about kids. Should we have kids? And, you know, expenses we think about, is this a good use of money? Is this a better use of money? We have these big questions that can feel like the answer to them matters so much. In fact, with our young people today, do you know one of the things that's happening is think about how we talk to young people like students today. We ask questions like, where are you gonna go to college? Do you know what you wanna be and do with your life? Are you gonna get married? How many kids do you wanna have? Where do you wanna live? And we ask them for like their life plan and they feel like, I guess I'm supposed to know, so they start giving answers. And I just wanna tell them, the person asking you didn't know when they were your age don't worry. It just It's fun. We talk about it at our house, like, hey, if you had to decide today, what would, what would you do? And that's just kind of a fun little exercise, but it's not like you need to decide. You need to decide now. And they're feeling that weight of needing to do that. It feels like those are huge questions. Some people have big health decisions to make about them or a loved one or a person that's infringing on your life or your family life. And you go, how do I, how do I respond? Do I need to, if I pull back, is that okay? Do I need to press in and help heal that relationship or whatever it is? Or um, should I take this person to court? There's an adult one. What do you do when legal stuff gets involved? Or how can I forgive this person? And, And I know I should, but what does that look like? And how can I do it? Like there's really big decisions that we have to make in our life. But there is no question that we will ever need to answer that is bigger than the one that Jesus asked his disciples in the text that you just heard read. Who do you say that I am? am? Who do you say that I? And when we have an answer to that, I mean, if you think about the things we want in life, we want to know where did we come from? That's the question of, of origin. where did we come from? Jesus answers that. that. That helps us know the answer to that. What's my purpose here? What's the morality that I should use to guide my life and make decisions? What's my destiny? Where, where will I be forever? And how does, that, how does that work? These are huge questions. And if we don't have answers to that, this whole life just becomes panic and stress. If we have an answer to that, then all of a sudden you go to college and you make sure you find a church before you find your sorority. When you're trying to make decisions, you take out, how will the world, how will my non-Christian friend react? And we start thinking, would God be pleased by what I'm about to do and decide, by what I'm about to say? see, See why this matters? I mean, this has ripple effects everywhere. How we answer the question, how do we see Jesus, who do you say he is? That answers this question. Do you really believe that your lost neighbor can be saved? Oh, sure, we know that they can. Like, we know that right here. Do you really believe that? Or, or do you know how to, you know, I, I got pretty good at saying, well, oh, I know they can. God, can. God can do anything. I don't know if I really believed it. The issue is not just that issue. The issue is who do you say I am? And so we've got, we've got to get this Right? The good news is Jesus asked it. Peter, on behalf of the apostles, gave an answer, and Jesus said, good job, Peter. So we can assume that what he did was right. And I'm just gonna tell you where we're going. Your homework is going to be to answer that question. Because even those of us that have been Christians a long time, who is Jesus to take maybe, maybe years of sitting in church and Bible study and relationship with the Lord and to really go, who is he, and put that on paper to really fill in that blank. We'll see how Peter filled in the blank, but you need to know the location where this happened. I've actually preached on this once already. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I preached in it from Matthew's gospel. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke's gospel doesn't give us the location. Only Matthew and Mark do, for some reason, but it's the same incident, and it's in a place called Caesarea Philippi, and the Bible only records Jesus traveling here on one occasion, So we're talking like a 10 to, depending on on stops, 15-hour journey to go from where he was to Caesarea Philippi. And it's the only time it's recorded. So I'll show you in a minute. It's so obvious. He is communicating something by being in that location. Let me explain this location a little bit. We have a a map of it. Can we put the map up? It is up in the northeast corner. You can see the Sea of Galilee there. Apologies, people just listening on the podcast. Um, Caesarea Philippi. And then you can see Mount Hermon. They're actually, Mount Hermon's in Caesarea Philippi. It's it's right there. Um, And it is, um, it's funny going to Israel and they're like, now this hill is 4,000 feet above sea level. And all the people from Colorado were like, no, oh, that's cute. That's like a speed bump where we're from. But um, this one is at 9,000 feet above sea level, which, which is big for the region. The Dead Sea's nearby and it's the lowest point on earth. So this is a very prominent um, mountain especially and then the range there as well, the mountain range. It's this big rock formation, lush vegetation and have been as far back as we can see in this area. The reason is, is because there's tons of water there. There's tons of water. It it forms into these three large springs, these limestone underground fissures that are there form three large springs. It becomes the headwaters of the Jordan River. And so the water goes through it. and, um, And water in that day, you need to know, means two things. Number one, it is life. It is life. It is when they would set out, like Abram and Lot, when they separated, Um, And if you don't know the story, Abram took the high ground and he said, Lot, even though I could pick, you get to pick the land. Lot looked and said, there's water over here. It's lush. I will take that. That was his determining factor. Not, are there wild animals? Are there bad guys there? Like he just goes, there's water, I'm taking this one. And so they split and he goes that way and Abram goes the other way. You see, when they go into lands, the first thing they do is they start drilling. They start digging. They start to try and get to a well so they can get water. They have to have water for themselves, for their livestock, um, sometimes even for for, um, the crops and things. Um, And so it is life to them. The Philistines used to do this. Remember Goliath, the bad guys, the Philistines? They would go conquer somebody and then realize, we don't really need this land anyway. They just defeated them. And so the Bible says they would take earth, they would take dirt, and they would just dump it in the wells. And the reason is, it sounds like such a bratty little child, like, well, we can't live here, but we don't want anybody else here either. And so they would stop up the wells, otherwise people would come along and go, hey, there's a well here, let's start a city, a nation here. So this is like life to them. And that's one thing that water is. The second thing is water, the rain, uh, would indicate blessing from God or the gods, so to speak, in that day. Because there's water under the ground, there's water that would rain down, the water gets replenished. And you can imagine in that ancient world, they see that and they go, thanks be to God or the gods for doing this. And so it was like, it was so essential for them and it was so, in a sense, religious to them. And this place, Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi, was, uh, was the wellspring of water. And you can look back throughout history, it became this sacred place. In fact, the, um, the name Hermon, Hermon, Mount Hermon, comes from, um, comes from the, uh, the Hebrew word harem, which means to be dedicated or set apart or sacred So listen to the religious history of this place. All the way back, we can see in the 14th century BC, there was a treaty between the Hittites and Amorites, and it says they both swear by the gods of Mount Sharayanu, which is what Mount Hermon used to be called. 14th century BC, they're already talking about the gods of, why didn't they pick anything else? It's that region. It was so lush. It was so thought that um, the gods had favored them. The Canaanites called it uh, Baal Hermon, meaning Baal, Baal, is the god of that mountain range. They came and they immediately just said, this is a holy place for us as well. God's people, the tribe of Dan, they split into you know, Israelites, 12 tribes. Part of the tribe of Dan migrated there. The city was named then L-A-I-S-H, Laish, And a bunch of them migrated there, and what'd they do when they got there? They set up ways to worship God there, and they went to that place. Why did they go? Because of the water, because it was holy, because it was sacred. And then they eventually set up golden idols there, and they turned from God. Then it became under Egyptian control, incredibly polytheistic, many, many gods. And then the Greeks came in, and the Greeks took it over in 198 BC, and they renamed it P-A-N-E-A-S, Panaeus. And you can see P-A-N is Pan, the god Pan. And they said this is where this god Pan, who um, was the god of all material substances half goat, half man, uh, like goat down here, man up here, all right, Um, they said this is where he was born. And there was a cave there, and they said this is where this Greek god was born. It was about as holy or sacred or um, religious um, of a place as you could possibly imagine, there's a um, can you put up there 's a picture of it this is i don't know how modern this is actually, but this is a picture of it, and you can see there 's a cave, and then there 's all these things that are cut into Um, the the edifice there and it's where they would take idols. And so what they would do, a lot of times you'd conquer somebody and then you would get their idols and you would smash their idols and you would put your gods there. Well, we have evidence that here what they did is they didn't want to mess things up. And so they would just sort of have, a. sometimes they'd smash them, but sometimes they would just have like a hierarchy. Like the Romans came in and they went, wait a minute, all this water was here. The Greeks had all their stuff here. Let's just just kind of um, move the Greek gods kind of to the, the outskirts and put ours more prominent. Like that, that's what they would do. And so you can imagine over centuries, you've got all these idols, all this worship, and they say that Pan, this God, was born there. That's the setting for where they are. And then in um, 20 BC, so by the time Jesus gets on the scene, this city that was named for Pan became known for Caesar Augustus by King Philip, or Philip the Tetrarch, and so they called it Caesarea Philippi. Now, there was a huge temple there built to pan, and so what they did is, depending on different stories, one, it's not there now, it got either knocked down or um, they just kind of went, that's fine, and then built another one out in front, and they spent years and years, a couple decades, building this huge temple to the emperor, are you, are you getting the drift of what is happening here? You've got the, the Canaanite gods. You've got the Israelite gods. You've got the Israelite idols. You've got the Egyptian gods. You've got the Greek gods, including Pan especially. Then you've got the Roman gods and the Roman emperors who were trying to deify themselves and to declare themselves God and worthy of worship. This is the location standing probably very near that, and you could probably see it in the distance. This mishmash wall, it's like a, like a religious museum almost of what people have tried over the millennia, all up there on full display. Uh, whatever you want, just pick one, just pick one. Just, these are invented gods that have been created over time to just create the, the culture, the morality, the, maybe a false sense of security. They'd say a sense of security, but a false sense of security to help us get through life. It was, you know, the Christian view, of course, we are made in the image of God. These are gods made in the image of man that they have put up and they are now worshiping. Yeah, just, just pick one. It's all, it's all religion. It's all spirituality. Does that sound like where the world is today? Who do you think God is? What do you think truth is? Whatever you say, just, just pick that and just believe that. And Jesus is going to walk them through. I want you to have this backdrop as he asks this question. Now it happened, verse 18, that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and asked him, who do the crowds say that I am? Excuse me, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? It's a different word here for crowds than just the word for people, not just you know people, like people we can see over there. Crowds, he means people that aren't around anymore. the the crowds. We've just done a bunch of healing. We've just been walking through crowds and crowds and crowds. That's what he's talking about. These are not people that are following him, and it's not even people that have put up a mild interest. It's people that he just sort of happened to come along at some point, and now they've just left, and he and the disciples are right there. And so they answer, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. The others, one of the prophets of old, have risen. They respected him, in a sense, but they kind of lacked insight into who he really was. I mean, this is the culture, like, you know, religious people were just sort of fine in that culture. And so they're like, well, he's fine. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's a prophet. I don't know. Maybe he's one of those guys. They didn't have clarity. They weren't specific. He's just a celebrity healer or preacher or prophet or something like that. Today, if you were to say, what are the crowds in America? Who do they say Jesus is? Well, when I, was, I don't hear this as much. When I was growing up, I'd always hear like he's an interesting philosopher, like he's an interesting philosophy of life. I don't hear that as much anymore. You might hear them say he's an important person in history, but you might hear things more like, um, oh, he's this big buzzkill. He's this genie that's supposed to give me my best life whenever I want it. He's just, he's just my buddy, my pal, that's it. He's a real inconvenience. God doesn't do the things I tell him to do sometimes. Or one that's probably pretty prominent today, this outdated landlord that he sort of served his purposes, but now he's not really needed. He maybe started the world. He maybe created the world and he got it going, but we've got it from here. And so he's somebody that's unnecessary, largely to the crowds in the world today. It's whatever we want him to be. I'll just make him into just a good guy, just all about love. He's just, some, he's just some little gentle soul that just hugs everybody. He's one of just many good options. He's a big religious figure. He, he's probably like 80% right or maybe 50% right in what he does, but then I need to fill in the gaps in the other piece. That's the crowds. That's negative, maybe worst-case scenario of the culture we're in. Have you ever noticed that some of the strongest negative opinions about Jesus, God, the Bible, Christianity are held by those that are in the crowd. By people that haven't really pressed in, largely, that haven't pressed in to understand and walked with Jesus and maybe had some confusion or maybe are just missing some pieces or something. Largely, the grenades that sort of get lobbed at Christians are from people who have never experienced just walking closely with the Lord. And what he wants to do is he's about to tell them you're gonna to go to those people. Do you know the people that you are going to go and share with? Do you know? I mean, honestly, like today in, 20, in 20, 2022, do we know, like, can we walk in the world, can we spot this is somebody from the crowd that is just giving an insult to Christianity or Christ um, that is making a claim that's just false? This is a person who, is, who, who, who maybe says they want to follow God or has an understanding of God, but it's really just another idol that's put up there on that big edifice. It says Philippi. It's not the true God. In fact, one of the things that I, that I like to do this may be a way to, to help with this some. <clears throat> um, if, if someone lobs something at Christianity and you don't have an answer right off the tip of your tongue, don't be discouraged. That doesn't mean there's not an answer. It just means you don't know it yet. But don't we feel like I got to give every single answer to everything that anybody could possibly put up? When in the reality is this, this is really important. Most of the time, what I find when people lob something at Christianity from the crowd, the issue is not even the thing they're asking me. Like, how can you Christians, how can you Christians do that? And you say God is loving and then you go live in the world. And you know, it's, it's the, you, you say you're loving and all the Christians I know are, are horrible. And you go, what? And then, and then what do you do? I'm going to defend myself. You know, well, how many people do you know that are bad? I know this many that are nice. You know, and it's like this argument. And the reality is what I love to do is I love to go, that's the issue, but there's something deeper. And so to go, what, what, why, do you, why do you say that? I, I don't know you very well, or maybe I do. I don't know you. What, is, is, where did you get that from? My background is, is different in that. Can you explain that? Oh, yeah. Well, I, when I was at church, We had this for years and then this church did this horrible thing to me and my family. I can't set my foot back in. Okay, so what just happened? You Christians are all terrible and that comes from one person's perspective of some Christians were really, really harsh to me at one one time. And then we can go, that's legitimate. Like we can talk about this. But if I just try to get up here and I never even ever talk about this, then the conversation's going nowhere. I can't believe that you Christians would say, God's a God of love. No, he is. And let me quote scripture to you and tell you why. And then you start talking. But if you just stop and go, can you help me understand why you think that? Well, this really horrible thing happened in my past and God didn't save my family member from this terrible thing. And so, oh my gosh, I get it. You have questions about how to take the love and power of God and reconcile it with a very personal tragedy. I get that. And now you can talk about that and care for them in that way. That's the crowd. But the reality is, is Jesus is, he's not, he he just wants to know do do you all know what you're walking into, disciples? And then he turns to them and he says, but who do you say I am? That's nice what the crowd says, but contrast to what they say, who do you say I am? And I don't do this to be goofy, but it is. It's y'all. It's a plural. He's saying, Who do y'all say I am? Who who do you all, you 12 that are there with me, who do you all say that I am? And I think about, let's go to the plural of this and think, Who does the church in America say that Jesus is? Who does the church in America say that Jesus is? I'd love to be in small groups right now so I can go, What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What, What are you hearing? because at least the ones that make the news seem to have a different idea than largely, uh, largely from what the Bible actually teaches. It's become amazing to me how the church will often look to the culture for its cues on what they're supposed to do and talk about. It's like, th- this is, I'll just sum it up like this. I have real angst about this. And I talked to some pastor friends of mine, and I think they're giving in a little bit. And I don't want to go to the other side and be like, man, I forget the culture and just start like yelling and railing on the culture instead of loving them. I don't want to be that guy. I mean, I do, but that's my flesh. So I'm going to try to be a more Christian man about this thing. But most people, most churches today think about, listen, this is really important. Think about when we're in the culture and we're supposed to be a city on a hill, we're supposed to be a light in the world. They see the church as a little dimmer switch, and you need to take your cue from the world, and don't don't be too bright. Listen, if the world's at zero, you gotta be at 10%, and that's about it. Maybe 20%, maybe 25%. Instead of going, we hold the truth, Jesus Christ has revealed it. We're going to be a light in the world. So a lot of churches today don't come to church and ever feel convicted. That's what a lot of them think. I don't wanna convict people. I just wanna encourage and strengthen and build up. That's good. I can be the other guy that just tries to like convict the whole time, you know? And you're like, don't beat us up. I get it. Like, I wanna build up, but I also like to come to church and feel like, ugh, yeah, I've got sin. I need to repent. I need to turn. Like, that's good. That's right. That's growth. That's where the growth happens. And so he asked the disciples, who do you all say that I am? And Peter steps forward for the 12. He goes, I got this, guys. And he steps forward and he says, the Christ of God the, singular, Christ, Messiah, the one that is sent from the one true God. That's his answer. Now, think about that. I, like I, this may not be how it happened. I picture Jesus like sitting here and the disciples standing, that's how they taught a lot, standing and looking and seeing that huge wall in the background where all these gods have been. Who do you say that I am? This didn't happen, I'm sure, but I just picture Peter like looking up at that and going, I got this, boys. And he steps forward and he says, you are the singular Christ. You are the one that is sent from the one almighty God. All that's false. All that is man-made religion and man-made invention. You're the one that is sent from God. So the disciples maybe don't understand comprehensively yet but they do understand that he's the Christ. So it's odd. Now, what do you do with this information? Don't take this into present day. This is very specific. It says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. That's the a technical term of an officer giving an, uh, an order to a subordinate in the military. He strictly charged and commanded them, don't tell this or tell this to no one, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. Here's why he just said that, and here's why my advice today wouldn't be, so go and don't tell a soul about Jesus, all right? That's not, what he's trying, that's not what he's trying to get to. In that day, as soon as he said, you are the Christ of God, the sent one of God, they would have thought, you are going to reestablish your kingdom. There's perks for me, and I want in. At his ascension, um, uh, they, they, uh, they asked Jesus, is this the time you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they're looking for. And so it's like they would have this expectation, oh, finally, Rome is killing us. And now you, the Christ of God, are here. What's in it for us? And it's like Jesus immediately just says, I want to correct that in your mind. You got a lot to learn about the road that the Messiah is going to travel. And so this is going to include my rejection, my suffering, and my death. And what he's saying is it might require yours as well. That's why I asked John to keep reading in um, the text. He said to all, this comes right after it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the world or loses, uh, and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever's ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We'll, we'll hit that a little bit more Um, next week but just to apply this here today to say how can we be obedient to this to think um, what costs might come to you by following Jesus Christ in a world that says you shouldn't do that why why, why do you hold so firmly to that don't you know now we can kind of create God in our own image what what price might you have to pay Jesus is going uh, I'm going to be killed and if he were here going, Jim, are you willing to do that? I'd go, yes, because I know the answer I'm supposed to give. But the reality is, what if it means I lose a family member? Lose a family member, like, um, like you know, debating and disagreement and kind of thing, and so our relationship is severed. What if it means that my neighbor just moved in and we're going to have a conversation? And if I go there and they're on a different page, that means it's just going to be awkwardness and avoiding each other now for the rest of our lives. Am I willing to take that chance and pay that price? We gotta be careful about changing our theology as soon as we get in a tricky situation or something that might cost us. But if at any point we go, maybe they're right. Maybe they make a good point and I'm reading this and I'm saying what God has revealed to us. I didn't just invent this and they're saying something else. If it's something different from this, what Jesus is trying to communicate is that is not just, that's kind of another way of thinking. That is creating a God in the image of man that adorns that wall at Caesarea Philippi. Amen. That's what he's saying. Christians, we think distinctly about this. We have to get comfortable living in a way that the world may or may not like. Most important the question is, who do you say I am? Two quick comments. First, whatever else we say, I'm going to replace Jesus with that or create another image of Jesus and just um, replace him with that is going to be replaced by future generations. Did you catch that? If we, because people who worship Jesus and changed what, you know, with the culture before, there were different sins in the culture over the different centuries. And so like, look, you see the church of Jesus Christ and you see it like blowing through the world, And what do we see about those Greek and Roman gods that were there on that day? We call them mythology, fake, phony stories. Who do you say I am? We don't replace Jesus with with anything. Here's the other thing. There is one enemy and we need to know how to defeat him. There's one enemy. When I talk to people, this this tends to come up. Is there just one God? I don't know. How many enemies are there? If I go, there's one enemy, Satan, they kind of go, I can get behind that. That's fine. There's there's one enemy. Fine. Then you got to know how to defeat this guy. And and if you're just going, I'm just going to give it my best guess as to what to do, you, you are doomed. In fact, let me tell you what has happened there. So many of you know this. In the other gospel, Um, in Matthew's gospel, when Peter gives his profession, he says, uh, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son, excuse me, of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, Matthew records more of what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, remember where they are, I will build my church. And it says the gate of Hades, or sometimes we say the gates of hell, but the words literally the gate of Hades shall not prevail against it. Amen. Let me tell you what Homer tells us. Ho- not Simpson, Homer. Uh, sorry, poet, author, Homer. Very important distinction. Um, there's this threefold division among the sons of Kronos in Greek mythology that you have, excuse me, Zeus has the dominion of the hev- the domain of the heavens. Uh, Poseidon has the sea, and then um, Hades has the murky darkness of the dead below. All right, so he's got the dead, and so they had this idea of Hades um, in that day. You know, one of the few gods that was able to cross from this life to Hades was Pan. And so the place where they are standing in Caesarea Philippi was called in their day the gates of Hades. And so he is talking to Peter and he says, this gate, all this stuff, the gates of hell itself will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ that I am starting with you. That's what he's saying. That's how profound it is. And as you look out at what's happened, you see the church just growing and growing. And listen, I know it feels like like we're getting beat up here in America. You start looking out of our American mindset and go start looking across the world and the gospel is still just spreading like wildfire. How's Zeus? How many people pray to Zeus today? Or Kronos or Pan? Like most people don't even know who Pan is. Oh, but in the day they were everything. Here's, here's your homework. Who do you say I am? It's a good exercise, seriously, to go home and just sit down and write it out. But here's an even better exercise that I'm hesitant to say because I'm going to have to do it. We're driving today. We're going to go see some uh, spring training down in, in, uh, for baseball down in Arizona. And on the way down, I'm going to talk to my kids. I'm going to talk to Nikki, My wife. And I'm going to ask them to fill in the blank, not with my words, but with my life. Hey, kids. Hey, Nikki. How does, how does my life answer that question? Because I can get good words to fill in the blank. But how am I living? Don't answer that question with just your words. Answer it with your life.